This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Another week has gone by with interesting weather, but whether it's rain or shine, there's always time to read a book. This week, my editor, author and publicist is Lindy Cameron. Sleuthed it has a variety of authors from different stages of writing careers and countries. There is a subject that links all these short stories and Lindy Cameron is the editor. Welcome to Published or Not, Lindy. Thanks for having me, Jan. Well, Lindy, you're the publisher of Clandestine Books and also a writer. So how did you choose the other writers in this anthology and what was the subject you asked them to write about? I chose the other writers specifically because I knew they were all mystery writers and animal lovers. So the subject of the anthology is animals who help other animals solve crimes and mysteries, although sometimes they help their humans also solve a crime. Uh, Most of the animals in the stories are anthropomorphic in that they talk, they are the narrators. Talking animals, does that make it more a kid's book? Not at all. I, I specifically asked for stories for adults, but that could be enjoyed by children. So it is a grown-ups um, mystery anthology. All of the, the stories in there are written um, for, for big people. Um, but, but there's only one that would be, you know, maybe you might not read to your 12-year-old, but um, there's certainly teenagers could read it as well. Um, yeah, but it's definitely not a children's book. No, it certainly is not. But, you know, when you think about animals helping to solve crime, we've seen it, we've read it, we've seen it on television, haven't we? We, we certainly have, and that that's, was part of the inspiration. Every other female crime writer I know in Australia and probably England, uh, and quite a few of the guys as well, were born and bred reading Enid Blyton and The Famous Five and The Secret Seven. You know, my hero from a very young age my sleuthing hero was Timmy the dog from the famous five. So I've grown up with, with animals. He didn't talk. Um, but, uh, and then of course, you know, television had Rin Tin Tin and Lassie and, and more, more recently Inspector X and, and not that any of those spoke to, to the reader to, or, or to the audience, but they may as well, because once you've, once you've got an animal as a character, you know, I'm sure you think that you're, if you have your cat yourself, Jan, or a dog, I'm sure you think that they actually understand you and they talk to you. So, you know, <laughs> it's the same, you know, we all, we all think they understand us and in, in these stories, they absolutely do. And sometimes it's really funny because the animals find it difficult to understand each other. You know, the cats that talk about the dog speaking doofus and <laughs> yes, <laughs> and all the different bird talk that's around. They yes. complain about different languages <laughs> being spoken. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the stories, Paul Roxburgh has written a story in which a, a magpie discovers that a, a woman nearby who's, uh, who turns out to be a policewoman uh, at a crime scene, it seems that the, the magpie is speaking magpie language, but it seems suddenly that this uh, female um, police officer can actually understand the magpie. She and the magpie set up an agreement that the magpie will help her solve the human murder if she helps the magpie solve a serial killings of cockatoos in the area. Well, there's another story from Ireland that has it the other way around. And this is set in Limerick, of course, where there's true empathy between a person and its symbiotic animal or companion. And it's a feral fox. And the human 
gets to taste everything that the feral fox eats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the lovely Jack Fennell. He's a, he's a writer who's contributed to two anthologies I've done so far. Uh, and we discovered him through sort of fan fiction and, and the international um, spec fic world. But, yeah, his his character is, is, a, is, a, is a woman again. Um, but, yeah, her, her fox, everything her fox eats, which could be something disgusting, she ends up tasting, which is not pleasant sometimes and is pleasant other times. So. <laughs> Some of the writers jump into sort of more that sci-fi area. We've got a writer from USA who has cats that hunt cryptids, antisocial zombies and ghosts. And that's also yeah. got a vampire and mermaids in it. So that's got quite a collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth Ann Scarborough has actually been writing about that character, Spam the Cat, for a while. And uh one and one of Spam's best friends uh, was is another cat who got bitten by a vampire and is now a a cat pyre and and hangs upside. It's got wings and everything and hangs upside down in the in the kitchen cupboard uh, when when she's not needed for for solving crimes. But uh, so there's a bit of a bit of folklore and a bit of um, uh, mythology involved in in her story. It's just fabulous. If you've been to England and the Tower of London, you know that there's ravens there to protect it. But the crown jewels get stolen and Falco and his stool pigeons could be the ones <laughs> to blame. So Scotland Yard calls in its best. So who does it call in? Reggie Starling of Scotland Yard. <laughs> I think the fabulous notion that it's a starling that's solving the crime of the of the crown jewels is also, you know, it's not a it's not a raven, it's not a, a regal eagle or anything like that. It's Reggie Starling. <laughs> Reggie Starling. Well, from England, we'll, we'll take it back to Australia. And uh, Meg Kennelly, you know, she's well known as a, a historical writer here. So she's got 1900 Sydney and the quarantine station with the bubonic plague. There's a nurse that works there. But what animal helps the nurse to solve a burglary. I think it's the only non-anthropomorphic story in the collection from memory um, and it's a penguin in this instance. So there's a colony of fairy penguins in, in Sydney Harbour. There always have been. And yes, this is this is an accidental clue given by a fairy penguin that, that she's that the main character has been sort of watching on the beach when she goes for walks. But you know, the, the fabulous thing about that story, of course, is, is that it's, it's in a situation where there's another quarantine. <laughs> Cats do appear a little bit more than most other animals in this book. The bookshop cat. But the bookshop owner has her own connection with humans, are in a detective club. But when they start dying in unusual accidents, it's the cats that solve the murders. I know, that's hilarious, isn't it? The, the, the cats are narrating that story too. And they're seemingly in the background of the actual crime that's being looked at. But sort of commenting, these humans really don't know what they're doing. You know, it's obvious what's happened. You know, so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that. And the cats are able to communicate with each other over over Zoom, Zoom Skype type sessions because their owners are using the machines. And so they're in the background going, you know, sort of giving cat language to the other cat on the other side. It's, it's quite funny. <laughs> and then we have Kerry Greenwood. Well, I think most readers of detective novels know Kerry Greenwood's name. And... She's given the title of hers the La Gaza Ladra, which translates as the thieving magpie. 
but it's not. It's no, it's no. It's it's a it's a red herring that title. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the other stories where where it's actually Phryne narrating that story, not not the cat, but the but it is the cat and it's Phryne's cat and dog who alert uh, Phryne to the fact that there is e- there even is a crime and help her solve it. So Phryne Fisher story, yes, yeah, with her, with her pets helping with yes, it. with now- her pets. Lindy Cameron, it's time we started talking about yours. Yours is the last short story in the book and it's really, really complete. We haven't had Lucy Arden in any of your other writings, have we? No, we haven't. But my problem creating short story characters is that I like them so much I want to turn them into a book or several books or, you know, several short stories. So she may well appear again. I I hope so. Well, let's hear a little bit about Lucy Arden. Yeah, so my story is called Hauntings, Inc. This is a very brief reading. <clears throat> I am indeed Melbourne's primo ghostbuster in the sense that I smash any idea that spectres or ghouls are even a thing. And as an expert in proving the partic- peculiar and spooky is merely odd and explainable, I find my clients are often the strangest things about the not hauntings. They range from those freaked out by strange house noises to people haunted by guilt or bad memories, or those desperate for an impossible connection to things lost. The latter are always disappointed. I was looking forward to finding out if my famously eccentric client, Eleanor Blake, was merely odd or completely wackadoo. So Lucy Arden, she's got her feet on the ground. She goes to this her client's house, but the house itself is incredibly described so just give us a little voice image of that house the whole concept of the story and my character and the characters she meets was was inspired by five go to smugglers top therefore the house uh, in my mind had to reflect the kind of house that if uh, someone reading famous five books that I would just be so joyous in in discovering was at the end of my peninsula or the end of my street so this particular house is set on the morning peninsula sort of overlooking Bass Strait it's wild the house itself is looks like it's built from the ground up uh, and as it turns out it's built from under the ground up because it has underground tunnels and things of course because it was once a smuggler's house but it's just magnificent it's bits here and bits there and different roof lines and several stories and it's even got a widow's walk on top so it's the perfect house for a smuggler story the perfect house for a murder mystery fabulous exotic places that you expect stuff to happen and of course the owner the eccentric Eleanor Blake explains to Lucy Arden that she's asset rich but cash poor so what she decided to do her house and grounds are every year given over to a a medieval reenactment festival which pays you know, regular money every year. But she's decided to raise extra funds to turn part of the house into a writer's retreat. And one of the silly ideas that she has that's going to be held during the medieval fair is to host seances. It's Lucy's job normally to bust a seance and, and, and prove that ghosts don't exist, that seances are bogus. And Eleanor knows that that's what she does, but she wants Lucy's help in making her seance more believable and and assuring her that it's only being done for entertainment, that no one is being robbed or conned or anything. It's just for entertainment. So while Lucy thinks it's a very weird job to be given, she goes along nonetheless because seances are bogus. She's told to scare the bejesus out of them. Yes. (laughs) Your writing has the then and now. 
the now which seems like a far-fetched dream until it is put into the context of what happened before in the then. There's two voices she continues to hear in the now, in the dream. What are they? So she thinks there's a television on and the voices sound like Sean Connery and Magda Zabanski having an argument or a discussion about something. So she's in her semi-wakened state that they're both on a talk show, that, that that could be the only reason why these two people are having a conversation at all till she wakes up properly and discovers who is actually in the room with her and then discovers that hauntings really might be a thing. I've never heard of a pan-dimensional being before. Are there such no, things? No. Oh, well, I suppose, but I I wanted a, an animal that in this sense wasn't a ghost so that the story could begin with the fact that she she's meeting a strange being, but mm. still, but he's saying, I'm not a ghost, you know, so, you know, but, but we need your help here to, to need your help. But Finbar is a Maine Coon cat who through an accident many, many, many years before, somewhere in a whole other ocean as a ship's cat, um, he ended up being sucked through a, 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 a void, a dimension, and now lives in this smuggler's house on the Mornington Peninsula. And sometimes he's there and sometimes he's not in the sense that he can be completely invisible as in a ghost. But, yeah, his short short, uh, short version of what he calls himself is a, a pandimby. I made it up. It may well be um, someone else may have a similar concept with a different name. But, yeah, Finbar is a pandimby. Where did your mind go when you decided to make the other little creature? I don't know what prompted it in the first place, except that I'm really glad I created her because I've always had a dread of huntsman spiders. Other spiders I could take or leave, but huntsman spiders, as anyone who has a fear of them will know, there is no rational, logical reason to be afraid of them, but I always have been. And seeing I was writing about animals and a spooky old house, I figured that this spooky old house would have huntsmans in it. And I just came up with a huntsman who calls herself Hecate Who. And the name is Hecate after the uh, ancient Greek goddess and the who as in Doctor Who because Hecate Who thinks that she's a time lord. And all of that, there's the beautiful Nina Blake, the uh, granddaughter, and she comes to Lucy Arden with another problem. There's lost pets. Two are just family pets accidentally, but it turns out that they are on the sleuthing trail of the other animals that have, that have gone missing and they're more exotic. More smuggling involved, perhaps. Yes. Well, I hope to see Lucy Arden in, in another book because it, it was a lot of fun. Not all crime novels have to have serial killers or gore. Who sleuthed it? is a light-hearted and fun read with animals helping to solve crimes. These short stories are by 19 different writers from many countries and edited by Lindy Cameron. Lindy, thank you so much for a fun read. Oh, thank you very much too. I love talking about this book. I think it's one of the most joyous things I've put together as a publisher as well. David has also been reading books and here he is. Delving into Eugen Bacon's collection of short stories, Danged a Black Thing, is almost like having your reality challenged. The language and storylines have us questioning what is real. So, Eugen, welcome to 3CR. 
Thank you so much, David. I'm delighted that you hosted me here today. Now, I've got to begin with the language. You seem to love playing with language. Anger does not cook yams and crooked wood shows the best sculptor. I mean, they, you tend to use metaphors and references which are almost from a different time and different culture. That's right. See, because I am African-Australian, I was born in Tanzania and I lived in Kenya and then I also lived in the UK before coming to Australia. And so I am a son of many cultures. I, I could think of myself as many. And so I think a, a, a fragment of me brings up the intrinsic African self. And some of those adages are almost borrowed from how my mother would speak or how my auntie would speak when she's calling me. And then there's also the Aussie in me. And then I also have this fascination with language. I really love language. I, I see writing as an interplay with language and just interacting with the characters that way. It's challenging because it seems to be unconventional. Yeah, I never really think about it. It's not even a conscious decision because my writing is very immersive. And once I start writing, I think the, it, it just becomes a natural transition into that story. And whatever happens with the language and whatever happens with the play just shapes itself. You shake us out of our complacency anyway. <laughs> you also um, will utilise the cultural voice. There's one story... I see the devil up close last Easter. It ain't no beast with horns, but the night was sure hotting up. You can hear yeah. the sound of uh, people in that, uh, in that region. But then as a contrast, your narrative style is almost poetic at times. I carry the strength of the sun, the subtlety of the wind, the solidity of water, the comfort of earth. I am a story a gargoyle sleeping in a corner. I encompass all limits, offer no borders. I am here between her hands. She created me. I created me. Yeah. I think it draws back to my affection for poetic language. And when I think back to some of the mentors who really inspired me in their writing, I think of Toni Morrison to whom, you know, uh, her writing is very poetic and it, it, it's almost lyrical. And especially when you read her, her novels like jazz, where you, you almost feel the music as you read the text. And I love Michael Undachi. I remember reading the I feel like I can feel the story even now as I talk about it and the excitement is there. And just recently I started reading um, Susan Medallia and she has really inspired me in her writing because she has that similar poeticity, which means that the, the poetic and the interplay of words is important to me. But also as part of my culture, there's the musicality. African, uh, you know, our cultures are a song and dance and we celebrate everything. And so when I write, I think sometimes there's a sing song in the language and it just happens. Your storylines then also toy with reality. There's one called Unlimited Data, must have a smartphone, the job ad said. And we have a blending of the future, which is technology, but it's juxtaposed with a third world. And it's almost as if the technology is exacerbating 
than mm-hmm. poverty. Yeah. So I was invited to write unlimited data for a cyberfunk anthology, where cyberfunk is where you integrate the computing aspects, but with black protagonists. And I really wanted to use black protagonists and that's why I created Old Kampala. And so it's based in Uganda, but almost like in a futuristic Uganda, but it's called Old Kampala. And uh, and the focus is also on the characters, Natukunda, the, the poor woman in the village and Kaikara, who is really trying to survive from day to day and he's looking at all options. But in the end, technology almost comes to their detriment because it's the programmer who benefits from it all. And there's so much loss to everybody else. But I wanted to integrate those, yes. I wanted to have the technology and also to have the the African aspect into it. It goes against the expectation of what we think technology is providing for us. And also then that notion of a sustained poverty that we simply can't break out of. That's right. It's it's almost a story of warning. I, I wanted to draw that out, like the tragedy that happens in the story. It's almost a caution that technology is wonderful, but we we, we, we are empowered in how we use it and, and who suffers when we use it. Well, you take technology to another level in Danged Black Thing. Your computer here has a name, Embu, and it is virtually a living thing. I took hold of Embu, who sat grinning on his desk. She shuddered mildly. It's a living entity. (laughs) I loved writing this story. So it was a collaboration with an American author who uh, we've never met. We met online and at a time when Amazon was doing Amazon Shorts and they invited us both to write short stories and we both liked each other's stories and so I proposed to Don, would you like to collaborate with me on a story and so that's how Danged Black Thing came up and what he really contributed to the story was the southern drawl, the the American accent and I brought in the the black embu so it's almost like an an African uh, computer or an African laptop that is very conniving and very a sexy little thing you know but it's a living thing it takes that notion of somebody almost having an affair with somebody on the other end of a computer to the point where they're having an affair with the actual laptop that's right I I really wanted to personify this laptop so that it became like a living entity and if you think of where we are in technology today think of artificial intelligence and so it's that kind of thing where suddenly the device becomes a real entity and it has so much control it consumes this man's life and it takes over you know the wife is completely jealous about her Well, it also begs the question of what is going to happen to and with technology, given the proposals about taking Facebook to a new reality and the lives that we're going to be leading in the future. 
That is right. It, it is both frightening, but also very exciting. But um, I, I wonder what the future is going to look like. So I'm a mother and I have a teenager and I always wonder what his life is going to look like years, you know, ahead, because things change so rapidly. Another change of reality. There are two stories here, Phantasms of Existence and Still She Visits, where we have the presence of lost children. Is McGoy yes. in the room with us today, asks Dr. Bland, right there, same corner. But these are someone's reality where they're creating the life of a child that has passed. Yeah, I have a deep connection with children and I think part of it is also one because I am a mother and I have a, a son and also because the African culture is very family centric and so um, children play a really important role in the society and I find that when I write stories with children I, I just really connect with them but what I wanted to do was to write migrant stories especially with those two stories. Fantasisms of existence has parallel stories and they're both migrants and I wanted to bring that out and I wrote Still She Visits when my sister Flora died of AIDS and so um, I, I, it's almost a story of grief but it's also quite pathetic and so the, the children come in into the stories that way. And also then children coming to another story, a visit in Whitechapel where the children are creating there are oh, yes, that's right. And it's a very different kind of story because it's not a first person narrative and it's not a you narrative, a second person narrative. I wanted to create a we kind of story where you have a collective and it's a collective protagonist that has a singularity of thinking. So all along they took us we and we did this and, and there's that that synchrony, but it's almost empowering the children because I wanted this to be their story. And this is one, it's one of my favorite stories because of the immersion that I felt writing the story and connecting with the children. Well, what is clear in these stories is the power of the characters to create their own reality, the power of an author like yourself to transport us into other realities not just in the imagination, but through the language. But also, lastly, you take us through different time zones. Some of these stories founded in your experience in Africa, but then we go into the future. And the last story, Forgetting to Learn, we almost have, well, we do have holograms and the reality of a relationship, <laughs> a digital presence. It, it absolutely could be where the future is going. And just think in the, in the olden days, you would woo somebody probably by uh, playing something or singing to them from outside their window, you know, throwing a rock at their window to draw their attention. And it was quite face to face. But now all you've got is a phone and you swipe left or you swipe right. And sometimes people have relationships and they've never met in person. And so technology is taking us places. Yeah. Well, given that I have never actually met you in person <laughs> and we're conducting this interview via Zoom, it has been a wonderful opportunity to get to see you, uh, to talk about Danged Black Thing 
and the author is Eugen Bacon, and it's a Transit Lounge release. So, Eugen, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much. I, I, I'm really happy to be able to bring out this literary speculative fiction to to different readers, because speculative fiction is a really safe way to explore different ideas, and, and, and that's what I try to do. David and I both had short story collections this week. What will it be next week? Listen in. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.